Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to John chapter 8. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying verses 31 through 47. <clears throat> So there John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word. You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, what? Free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices Sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, he names him, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth 
in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because then I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Here's why. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. All right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word for us. It's the bread that you have intended to give us, to feed us, to nourish us today. So do that. Give the Holy Spirit. Pour out your grace. Be merciful to us and teach us how to be a true disciple of Jesus, what that looks like. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's talk... uh, new convert class, or uh, maybe a a prospective membership class for the church, because you believe in a believer's church, and amen to that, your goal is to whittle down true discipleship to its foremost characteristic. That's your goal. What do you say? What's that one thing that must characterize true disciples of Jesus? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Or how about Jesus? If Jesus was leading our new believer class, if Jesus was teaching Meet the Mount this Wednesday night, May 18th, what would he say? There's no doubt. You can say all kinds of things here. But the question today is not about all the branches that we could talk about. It's about the root. It's about boiling true discipleship down to its fundamental essence. And insofar as it's in the text of God, we should all be able to to see it here and to agree upon it here and then to be uppermost about it. But in saying that, I'll say this as well, we do need to then be prepared for the pushback. Because it seems, according to verse 59 at the very end of this chapter, that you can hardly lay down the truth without some quote-unquote believers picking up stones to throw at you. Wolves in sheep's clothing do not like to have their wool pulled back. That hurts. And what Jesus says in this text will do it. That defining mark of a true disciple of Jesus is love for Jesus, listen now, proven by an abiding obedience to all His Word. Grace, truly in the heart, appears in godliness of life. That said, you'll note as a precaution, we have removed all the stones from around the sanctuary. That's a joke. You guys can laugh. It's okay. 
Let's come to our text. Receive it as the very word of God to us. Beginning with this idea, given in verses 31 to 38, that true disciples of Jesus abide in all his word. There it is. We'll just start with some recall here, how Jesus told them that his word is true. You remember from a week ago, my word is true. You are in grave danger due to your unbelief and that my cross is God's revelatory solution to the problem of darkened unbelief. As the cross will prove, Jesus is the light of the world for darkened sinners. And if you look back then, one verse to verse 30. I didn't read it at the beginning. If you look at verse 30, you'll see that it says that as he was saying these things, what? Many believed him. Many believed him. But, now, it must be instructive for us that Jesus does not let it lie there. That he's not content with professions of faith unchecked. And so if you look at our verse 31, John tells us that in response to this faith, in verse 30, Jesus held a class on true discipleship. It says, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews, and now how are they qualified? Who had believed Him. So His audience is no longer mainly this massive festal crowd. It's intentionally been narrowed to the Jews who had believed Him. And if we're tracking with John so far, we have good reason to be optimistic about these quote-unquote believers. Because... As you know, to this point, as John's been defining true faith, he's made a point to deny sign-deep faith that saving dignity. Excitement over the wonders of Jesus is not the same thing as casting your soul upon the words of Jesus. A person can be in awe of Christ's power and yet still be inwardly antagonistic to Christ's person and His real work. One can love His miracles. Don't they love them? Love His miracles, and yet hate the cross, John 6. This has been so much of the faith of many along the way so far. Happy to receive His bread, just dishing it out to the thousands, but ultimately unwilling to live, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Christ. But what do we see here? What do we see here? It's not a faith in some sign that he's just performed. It's a faith, verse 30, in words he's just spoken. So we, if we're tracking, we should go, yes, finally, Right? We, should, we should be leaping for joy all the way to the baptistry. But our Lord's pause should give us pause here. Apparently now, there is a faith in His Word that needs additional vetting. Now some don't like that. They find it unnecessarily scrupulous, unnecessarily thorough. But I wonder if they would say that to our Lord's face. 
One, because Christ is really among us right now. And two, because it is what Jesus does here. Uh, Many churches today may be cavalier about conversion. Jesus is not. Some may pamper people's presumptions that they are saved. Not Jesus. Our goal may be a glut of professions. That's not Jesus' goal. And why not? Because Jesus truly cares about the true condition of our souls. So patience is not a vice to Jesus. Somehow it seems some have become convinced that patience in harvesting is counterproductive to the Great Commission, but our Lord seems to disagree quite strongly. And our task as His people, as always, is to mirror our Lord's tactics. And here, it seems, is to be strenuously and prudentially concerned that professions of faith in Jesus are not merely so, but that they are vitally so. That best we can, we can see that these professions are actually legitimate. To learn more about that, then we enter the school of Christ. I'll just give the main lesson in summary, and then we'll just talk it out. In summary... Jesus teaches these believers that true disciples, true disciples will be supremely defined by a freed adherence to all His Word. They will gladly abide in it. Free. Gladly abide in it. And as they do, it will confirm itself to their souls that this is the the truth of God. And as such, it will set them free from sin to live as sons and daughters of God, which, to come full circle, will look like abiding in all Christ's Word. His Word having your heart as its lifelong home. Now, let's talk it out. You see, Jesus pampers no presumptions. He takes these Believers aside, as it were, and immediately says that the authenticity of their faith in Him is, as one put it, not just in beginning, but in continuing. That's the test of true grace in the heart. Not just beginning, but continuing. And about that, let's not neglect the obvious implication in verse 31. Not all who profess faith In Christ, have faith in Christ. And so Jesus has no qualms about huddling up these folks and alerting them to a really sobering reality. A reality he also teaches in the parable of the soils, if you remember that one. How some show signs of life. They really do. They show signs of life initially, but those initial signs then don't materialize enduringly. But it's precisely in that enduring fruitfulness, that abiding in His Word, that a true disciple is put on display. So, sadly, then there is such a thing as a Judas. There is such a thing, that is, as those who give a look of life in Christ. 
who commingle with true disciples and give maybe no indication whatsoever that they're any different from those actual heirs of grace only over time to finally splinter away from them. And in the end, forsake Jesus because while the one has a persevering attachment to His Word, that one does not. True disciples of Jesus abide in all His Word. The key word there is what? Abide. Yeah. True disciples, in other words, are in the Word. Right? I mean, let's just ask ourselves this week, have we been in the Word? True disciples are in the Word in permitting seasons of drought. They remain in the Word. And they're lovers of all they find. They live upon every line. There's no picking and choosing our spots. Well, I don't like that, and so just throw that. Okay, what and when and where will we be obedient to Christ? There's no time off for true disciples. And even if we do go rogue for a time, right? There, there, there should be quick repentance. It's our life, this word, so that we're ready to die for it. In just 28 more verses, those stones are going to get picked up and they are coming for the head of Jesus. Why? Because of His Word. They don't like it. And true disciples are prepared for that. What's on the front end of the call to Jesus? He doesn't say, follow me and then take up your cross later. He says, take up your cross and follow me. That's on the front end. So true disciples are going to be prepared for that. True faith is unflinching for the truth. It's prepared, as one said of J.C. Ryle, to stand alone. If all the world and every other saint should desert the word of Christ, there you are. right? And there they, they all go a-running and forsaking and denying, but you're standing. You will abide in the word of Christ, because John 6, 68, it is to you the very words of what? Eternal life. Beloved, I want to tell you this morning, we are not aiming to do ministry here the way we are for no good reason. We're doing it because of texts like this. As we seek not to generate an abundance of frail decisions in Jesus, but to make an abundance of true disciples. This is a ministry-shaping text. We're going to be a seriously, strategically, sweepingly, unswervingly word-centered church. Because we want to run people off? No. Because as a church, we want to be people who abide. We want to be the church indeed. Right? Then let's be sure of our mark and not miss it. Enduring 
faithfulness to the whole counsel of Jesus. That's the mark. Jesus relates it to freedom. You see that in the text? Okay, so they hear that word freedom. Now see, some in the class, what do they do? You'll be free indeed. And they go, oh, wait a minute. Got some objections. They say, whoa there, Jesus. We, verse 33, are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In other words, in this one statement from Jesus, they discerned an offsides, an encroachment upon their deeply embedded notions of what we might call salvation by stock. What he said has immediately made them feel insecure and unsafe, and we can't have that unless, of course, it's critical to their being safely secured in Jesus. But so their descent from Abraham, that's all their hope. That's all their hope in God. Their status as Israelites is, for them, the rock of their salvation. Never mind that saying, just saying, Ishmael, who they'd consider an enemy, also came from Abraham, along with his half-brother, their father Isaac. And so mere descent was never finally indicative of a saving relationship to God. Also, never mind facts, as in socio-politically, they'd pretty much been enslaved to foreign powers their entire existence. And to some degree, even that very hour, Rome, we share DNA with Abraham. We have never not been free. And sometimes I, I just imagine Jesus thinking, good land, folks, crack open a Bible. Why don't you? That's not what Jesus does here in our passage. Instead, because he's the best teacher, he explains what he means. He provides light for their ignorance, verse 34 and following. Here's what I mean. Here's my divine word on the matter. You ready for it? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So history does not start with Abraham. It starts with Adam. So forget Pharaoh, forget Nebuchadnezzar, forget Caesar, they're all patsies compared to the principality that's been ruling within their hearts. And regardless then of your earthly affiliation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you too came into this world as a child of Adam, a slave to sin, as is evident in your practice or your habit of sinning. Friends, let's be clear. If a life is, listen now, characterized, Habit, practice, defined by, characterized by sin. 
that soul is a slave still to sin. And that person needs, according to Jesus, to lose all presumption of being a true child of God and begin to look, God willing, in a new way upon the Son of God. You see how he continues here? He says, you're of the house of Israel. I know that. I get it. Okay. If you'd like to remain in the house forever, that is, if you would like to be a true child of God, you cannot remain a slave to sin. But that's what you are and will be unless the Son sets you free. And then you will be free indeed. Free. (laughs) Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And eventually, one fine day, even from the presence of sin. And so he's trying to get them to see what? Same thing he tried to get Nicodemus to see in John chapter 3. You must be born again. That's why he says in verses 37 and 38, listen, again, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but I also know he's not your only daddy. I know you think you're free when in truth you are most terribly enslaved. Fact is, you still seek to kill me. Again, Jesus is able to look in upon their hearts, right? You still seek to kill me because my word, which is my Father's word, my Father's word, finds no place in you. There it is. True disciples of Jesus abide in all His Word, but His Word finds no place in these folks. So let me ask us all, why do we think we belong to the Lord? Is your hope in a saintly ancestor somewhere way back when? Is your hope in a legacy of Christianity maybe in your family? Is your hope in writing the spiritual coattails of another? Is it in lifelong church attendance? Is it in a prayer prayed? Is it in a a peace felt deep within our souls? Is it in a baptism administered? If we think we have immunity as children of God from the judgment of God for any other reason than that Jesus died for us and thus we live for Him, we need to think again. Do you abide in all His Word? Be sure of it. The Son has not set us free from sin so that we just keep on going on living in sin, however masked in religion. He has set us free to live to God. That's what's supposed to be defining our lives. Are you living to God today? 
That's not fundamentalism. That's freedom. Holiness is not gracelessness. It's grace in action. Free and freeing grace gives no license to sin. It creates likeness to the Son. If you want full assurance, full assurance, that you're going to abide in His house forever, you must abide, dear ones, in His Word for life. With that then, I've driven us into our complimentary point. That abiding in all the Word of Jesus is a family matter. New birth gives rise to new life. Thus, new life confirms new birth. The proof of a healthy tree is in its fruit. And just so, the proof of the true child of God is in his or her life. His or her fruitfulness. And I know, as I wrote that, thought about that this week, that slammed me. (laughs) That is convicting. I feel it too, and so do these folks here. They clearly feel their roots being pulled up out of the ground and being exposed. The Savior's words have made them feel unsafe. So that, like a child clutching their blanket at an alien sound in the night. They make a latch-ditch effort to, to lay hold of their now crumbling rock. Abraham's my daddy. Oh, that in verse 39, they had said, oh, you, Jesus, are my Savior. But they returned to their security blanket. What you're saying, Jesus, cannot be Abraham is our father. As we seek to win souls to Jesus, we need to understand what's going on there. It's a pretty standard reaction of a lost soul to the light that exposes their true spiritual condition. As one put it, there are times when the white hot iron of the word enters their souls and they do feel bitterly that they are slaves. And so they douse it whatever way they can if only to quickly cool the heat of the truth that is intended to save their souls for all eternity. And I would too. I would fall so hard on my Abrahamic stock too. If I had been taught, listen up parents, listen up church, if I had been taught my whole life from birth straight against the truth of God's Word that I was good with God because of some combination of my ethnicity or my culture or my heritage or my religious badges. If you've been nurtured in that from your youth, that is really hard to let go of. Much more have uprooted. Indeed, it appears nothing can uproot that except the grace of God. Bottom line, they think their physical descent qualifies them as the children of God and Jesus looks at them and probably every southerner, every Christian by birth entity, 
every I'm good, sin all day, but pray to prayer once mentality and says, you are dead wrong. Put no stock in that. Are you doing the truth of God? That's the question we all always need to ask and answer from nine years of age to 99. I recall John Piper, if you know him, if you don't, just listen. I recall him once saying, yeah, I prayed a prayer when I was really young, and I believe it was real. I believe it was real. But if you're asking me where my assurance rests that I am today a Christian, it's not back in that youthful prayer once upon a time. It's in the fact that today I love Jesus. Today I want to know Him. Today I want to follow after Christ. So remember what Jesus said in another place to the crowds who said His family was trying to get at Him, trying to reach Him. He said in effect, my family, my siblings, my brother, my sister, my mother are those who hear the Word of God and what? Do it. I think if you look at the Greek there, George can check me. When he says they do it, it means continually. They continually do it. They keep on doing it. They keep at my word. And so he, he rests the assurance of a saving relationship with God on enduring spiritual and moral likeness to God. We've got to hear James all over again, don't we? The demons believe in God. We could probably say they believe in Jesus and shudder. You got to give me more, Jesus is saying. You got to give me more. And the more is not Abraham is our dad. Your father Abraham, he says, knew he was a sinner, trusted in God's grace. He saw my day. We're going to see this next week. He saw my day. He rejoiced in it. He was glad about it. And out of that root, he lived a life that can be graciously characterized as for the glory of God. So, when we say that Abraham is the father of faith, we mean he's the father of true faith. A faith that has footsteps. Indivisibly attached to it. And you guys, Jesus says, just are not keeping pace. You're not walking in stride. In fact, again, you seek to kill a man whose only crime is giving you the truth of God that I heard from him. Think again. This is not what Abraham did. You're following another father. No, well, now he's really done it, okay? Now he's really done it. Now, verse 41, that father begins to show up in his children. Now they bring the heat, and it is 
astoundingly ironic and sorrowful as a hot take. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> whoa, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. You laid Abraham aside? God is our father. <laughs> Again, their focus is on their birth. Their physical birth. Their point of origin. And by it, they claim the highest spiritual, now, because they did get the gist of Jesus' line of argumentation here, the highest spiritual right and blessing, God is our Father. And if you listen closely, you hear this. Baby. Yeah, we know your backstory, Jesus. We were not born of sexual immorality. We're purebreds. We're not sinners. We are the sons and daughters of God. To them, Jesus, the true Son of God, is the sinner. And they, the sinners, are the true children of God. Isn't that how it is? Until it isn't. Until you're born again. In the unbeliever's world, the things of God, like grace and truth and faith and love and true obedience, those things are counted as sin. While the things of sin are counted as all our glory and salvation. And in that world, Jesus will always be demonized for the sake of self-deliverance. We are not born of sexual immorality and whatnot. It's a great delusion of soul that the lover of our souls and of God's honor will not allow to long stand. I mean, you see who they're talking to, right? They're telling God the Son that God is their Father. Think about that. And so he, he takes it head on, dropping all mystery in the process. He tells them, starting in verse 42, God is not your father. If God were your father, what's he say? You would love me. That, friends, is the authentication code at the heart level into the true family of God. It's unrivaled love for Jesus as the divine emissary of God. God sent Christ Christ came from God, the darling of heaven made God manifest on earth. In the Son, the Father is revealed. We've heard all these things throughout John's Gospel. He's revealed in Christ. So that you cannot claim God as your Father and also reject, despise, and unfollow Jesus. You do that. The only thing that comes clear is this. Your Father, verse 44 is the devil. Now, I don't hesitate to say that we're no longer accustomed to that kind of talk. We've almost diluted it to the point of a punchline. It's more of a joke than a fact. But Jesus is not laughing when he says this, and I highly doubt they are either. 
So let me reintroduce us to something here. The devil is real. And his paternity is also real. From Adam, we all, minus Jesus, were born naturally inclined to do His will. Jesus teaches that in our text to be spiritual slavery. But by that, He means not that we were forced to sin against our wills, but that again, verse 44, we actually wanted to sin. That's the slavery. It's of our desires. We kissed the chains that bound us and would have drug us to hell. Our will, he says, was to do Satan's desires. We wanted to please him, which typically took the form of wanting to please ourselves. We really did what we really desired most. It's just that what we really desired most was sin. It was the devil's desires. This is what we mean when we talk about the bondage of the will. And it is the most awful bondage there is. Here's how a guy named Augustine talked about it 1,700 years ago. He said, at times, a man's slave finds rest in the notion of flight. He can get away. But where can the slave of sin flee? For he carries himself with him wherever he flees. The sin he commits is within. And so, he can't get away from it because he can't get away from himself. The pleasures of sin, those are fleeting. But sin itself is ever-present with them. Evil bondage, he cries. Folks, get what Jesus is saying. Spiritually speaking, everybody is following Somebody. Either him or, if not, Satan. And, get this, that that does not mean the latter are all Christ-cussing atheists. These folks are, they think, law-abiding monotheists. These folks go to synagogue. They go to church. They had professed faith in Jesus. Verse 30. But, now, when when push comes to shove, when their self-righteousness gets negated, when their prejudices get pruned, when their roots get cut, when their hearts and lives get exposed as foreign, outside the family of God, when they were beckoned to hope in Christ alone, what did they do? They bucked. And in that, their true father came. From the beginning, verse 44, Jesus says, he's a murderer and a liar. He killed and kills by convincing us to live by lies. Do you remember this from Genesis chapter 3? Did God really say that? Surely. He didn't mean what he said. 
You won't surely die. You decide for yourself. Then you'll be yourself divine. Like God. What could go wrong with that? And here we are. Murder and a liar. Why can they not spiritually comprehend, verse 43, what Jesus is saying? It's because their hearts cannot bear the sound of the truth. They are so enslaved to the liar, dead as they are in their souls, that believing in Jesus, much more abiding in His Word, is impossible as they are presently constituted. Everything in them is hell-bound to an irrational enmity bent on canceling out the voice of the Savior that would save them. Case in point, verse 46. What an amazing statement, right? Jesus asks, sort of, it's like rhetorical, right? Which one of you, this is amazing, which one of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine asking that question? If I ask that, I'm sure every hand in this sanctuary would be like, oh, I got something. But Jesus' point, revealing, as one put it, the most clear and serene conscience before God, is that He, like none other, is the sinless One. And that as such, What he says is what it's all about. What he says is the very truth of God without spot or blemish. And if they aren't able then to actually pin any sin on him, why don't they believe him? It makes no sense. But sin is irrational. It makes no sense except by what Jesus says in verse 47. Here it is, the end of our passage. What's he say? How does he make sense of their unbelief? Whoever is of God hears, in my words, the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them so as to love me and believe me and obey me is that you are not of God. Abiding in all the word of Jesus is a family matter. And they are not born of God. That's why they can't believe. That's why they will not heed. That's why they will not abide. They must be born again. All right. With that, class is over. For now. Friend, where are you in all this? Maybe you have a profession of faith, but it hasn't proven to be much at all, like the living faith described in the Bible. Maybe Jesus interested you once upon a time, but perhaps He never truly indwelled you by the Spirit. If you have any thoughts, any thoughts at all, right now along those lines, we would love to talk with you after to either encourage you in Christ or to invite you to Christ. For the first time. Dear ones, let me ask us a question. What if Jesus had not done this? 
What if we went from verse 30 to verse 48 or whatever? What if he didn't do this? Well, the text tells us, doesn't it? If he doesn't do this, souls that were yet enslaved to sin, that had no place for the word of Christ, that were spiritually kin to the devil, that wanted to kill Christ, that had not believed in Him, would have been brought into the company of Christ under the false assumption that they really were believers. And that would have been so much to their harm. As well as our own. Beloved, we know that we are not without sin. We want to be honest, open, sincere about that. And yet, at the same time, we want to be clear, don't we? That we really have been changed. That we really are different. That we really have been set apart from the world. That we really have been born of God. We want to belong really and truly and visibly to Jesus. And today, that mark has been made for us. True disciples abide in all the words of Jesus. And the sooner we embrace that, the clearer the light will be that benefits both the church and the world. How does this word of Jesus deal with you and me today? Let's take it to prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as always, we want to ask now that you would do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine in every single heart present this morning. We are so needy, so desperate for your almighty grace. Help us to feel your working in our hearts and in our lives and produce in us all that you mean to produce by this word. We ask it in Jesus' name.